And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The issues that divide us. You think, well, Craig, wait a minute. Do we really need to do this? I mean, isn't this an exercise that ought to be flipped on its head? Shouldn't we, after all, talk more about unity within the church? And there are certainly some very valid points to that question. And we'll, we'll pose that to our apologist and guest expert in a moment. But today I think about the fact that quite often when you talk to non-believers about positions concerning the church or their viewpoints, they are very rapid at telling you exactly what it is that we are against. Frequently, if ever, or infrequently, if ever, do they know what we stand for? And it really comes down to then questions pertaining to what's a schism within the church, um, the church with a, with, a, with a big C, um, the sense of this polarization, perhaps, that has always made me wonder if we are the same church, the same body of Christ that reads from the same Bible, we are drawn to the same Savior, we say or serve the same Lord. How is it on so many key questions we arrive at such varying or polar opposite conclusions on the same topic? Let's talk about that as we welcome into the conversation Dr. Alex McFarland. You know him best as a great author and director of the Christian Worldview and Apologetics Center at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. He is a syndicated talk show host, been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. And uh, Dr. Alex, as always, great to have you on the show. Well, Craig, thank you very much. You're very gracious, and it's an honor to be on again. What about this this sort of core pondering that I have? And I've always wondered at this as I look at extremes within Christendom. And we can talk about this, if, you know, at the denominational level. We can talk about it at the uh, at, at key questions. And I think we have to perhaps set some guidelines here. We're not talking about the the, the five pillars of the faith here. Certainly, unity on the birth, deity of Christ, the atonement, um, right. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, essentially, and his ultimate return. I mean, in order to kind of be within the, the fold or the definition of Christian, we have to find unity on those five key points or five key pillars. But it's so many other things, as you articulate in the book, that it seems so odd that we as Christians, and even the world, I'm sure, must shake their head at this, that we claim to serve the same Christ, we have the same Bible, and yet we draw very different conclusions. Yeah, and you know, when I speak at university campuses, which is pretty frequently, you know, that's one of the things I hear a lot, that um, they'll say, you know, how can you say this or that is the biblical position when you've got Christians of all strata that disagree on, you know, moral issues and issues that touch our, you know, culture and society. And and I really think some of the origin of the division, like like I write about in the book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians, um, relates to kind of a, a, a subtle drift away from Scripture that's been taking on, on uh, for several decades. You know, we've been really sort of losing our view of, of the Bible as, as the authority for life and practice. Mm. So even as much as the perception from the outside looking in that we have all this commonality, how do we draw such differing conclusions? Maybe it is because of that that drift that we have seen that uh, in many cases the source from which we draw the direction and the guidance and sort of the moral compass that you're suggesting is is not necessarily as common as it once used to be. Well, and, and let me preface everything that I'm going to say that, um, you know, I'm a guy that I love the church. I mean, I, I became a Christian when I was 21. I was in college and, you know, was one to Christ through a local church. I was discipled in, in a church. And, you know, the Bible is very clear that, that, you know, Jesus is Lord of the church. And, 
you know, if you read like Matthew sixteen eighteen, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what I'm about to say, I'm not bashing the church necessarily, but um, today's adult Christian was in a youth group, you know, in some previous uh, years. And I've got to say that, you know, really since the late 70s up through the present day, youth group, youth ministry in America uh, became very much focused on entertainment, and you've got to entertain kids and win kids, and you don't want to bore a kid because they might, you know, become uh, disinterested and walk away. And, you know, fun and entertainment is is great. I was a youth pastor for seven years, and, I mean, I did my share of of uh, paintball and pizza. But, um, you know, somewhere along the continuum, we really watered down discipleship, and we, ju- we just did. I mean, church in the last 25, 30 years of American life has really not been as rigorous as in previous generations, um, not only... Uh, really letting God's Word shape your life and permeate your heart. But, I mean, just having standards of, of speech and morality. And if you begin to talk about, you know, godliness and really, um, you know, avoiding worldliness, um, you know, some people are going to say that you're a legalist. And I'm listen, I'm, I'm not a legalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I really do think in terms of um, discipleship, and the life of the mind, really um, transforming our mind with God's truth. Um, the last couple of generations have really not had the edge that previous centuries of Christendom have had. And so here we are in the 21st century, and you know, in many a in many a context, the church does not look appreciably different than the world. And that's ironic because uh, you're right. We can see this this shift, this paradigm shift that has happened uh, within the church, particularly as, as you relate in this case to young people, where oftentimes, and I, and I let me do my my disclaimer here too. I'm not suggesting that this is indicative of all youth ministry within the church, but certainly a growing percentage of it that seems to be occupied with the idea of keeping the kids occupied or entertained, getting them out of the house for a while, or giving them something to do to keep them engaged while adult services are taking place, as opposed to the notion of, okay, here's our chance to speak truth into these young minds and to mold and to fashion and to embed foundational um, truisms into their life upon which we will then ultimately build their relationship with Christ, their relationships with others. It's interesting because I'm going to date myself here. Uh, there was an organization called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. Sure. Uh, this was a big thing back in the 1970s and early 1980s, but certainly throughout late 60s, early 70s. And uh, a couple of different churches that I was involved with, there was some point at which the focus of the, the educational program within the church for young people was so heavily directed toward again, foundation building, that getting into intense instruction along the lines of an institute and basic youth conflicts, and the older folks in the audience like me will remember what that was, we we saw that as being critically important. And yet today we've made this paradigm shift from let's educate them to let's entertain them. Exactly, exactly. You know what, yesterday I was on the phone with a, um, a, a youth speaker, I'm sure many, many, many of your listeners will know, very well-known youth speaker, and we were talking about, you know, getting, um, you know, dates on our schedule. Um, by God's grace, I've spoken in 
uh, roughly 1,400 churches over the last 18 years to do my apologetic seminars, which I love to do. And, you know, by the grace of God, I still, you know, I keep a very busy calendar. But this particular speaker was talking to me, and he said, you know, I'm not getting... Uh, the bookings with younger youth pastors, because th- this particular speaker is pretty meaty, pretty pretty heady, and he said, you know, a lot of the, the issues like premarital sex and abortion and uh, biblical morality, um, you know, traditional values versus homosexuality, um, he said that the, the youth pastors that are, say, 35 and younger um, either don't book me or similar speakers, or if they do, they don't want me to talk about um, these really tough issues, and so you know, while it's true, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want to just, you know, give young people the idea that you know uh, everything's bad. You know, you've got to look at the world in just these, you know, negative terms. I mean, the fact is, you know, we we do have to help Christians of all generations understand that you know it's a fallen world, it's a broken world, it's a a world that's been tainted by sin, and sinners need a savior. And we who have found Jesus Christ, we're to grow in Christ. Christ owns us all. Um, you know, any realm of life, whether it's our personal behavior, it's our morality, our our politics, uh, our vocation. I mean, God has spoken. You know, my friend Del Tackett of the Truth Project. You know, he says, look around in any direction, 360 degrees, and in any sphere of life, God has spoken. And so it's biblical worldview applied and lived out. And rather than, you know, take uh, succeeding generations of young people through, you know, the rigors of becoming a disciple and learning God's Word, oftentimes there's just been, hey, let's just keep it very, very superficial, simple little faith in Jesus, but yet we've not taken each other uh Deep. Barna said this. Listen to this quote. Barna, in talking about the lack of, uh, you know, a Christian worldview, he said, without a biblical worldview, teaching goes in one ear and out the other. There are no intellectual pegs in the mind to hang these truths on, so they just pass through and they don't make a difference. So, um, as daunting as it may sound, and uh, maybe as uninteresting as it may sound, although I really don't think it is, I think. The Christian worldview is really the, one of the most invigorating, uh, exciting things to apply our attention to. But as daunting as it might sound, we have to teach biblical worldview, what Christians believe, why we believe it, and how to, how to live it out. And I have found, let me, let me say, I have found kids, whether they're middle schoolers, elementary, high school, if you're talking about God's truth and, and why it matters and how it counts for eternity... They will track with you. They will, they will not tune you out. They will listen. I mean, I speak somewhere virtually every weekend. I talk to middle schoolers the same way that I talk to the grad students at North Greenville University or Liberty University, and that they can get it. And so I just want to challenge parents, pastors, youth pastors, that we've got to build a new generation of spiritual Marines. And not only do they not uh, turn away, they actually like to be challenged uh, I, I think kids want uh, a faith 
that's worth dying for. Well, and we sell our kids short when we suggest that they're not capable of any of this. And I think a lot of it, perhaps, uh, Dr. McFarland, is a product of the culture that we're in today, where, let's face it, we've grown accustomed to all that is instant, cheap, easy, uh, minimal commitment, and because it's not a lot of work involved in that. Uh, of course, sadly, too, there's also not a lot of results in it either. We're talking with Dr. Alex McFarland. He is one of the nation's leading Christian apologists. He is a celebrated book author, syndicated talk show host, director of the Christian Worldview and Apology at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University in, you guessed it, Greenville, South Carolina. And we're discussing his new book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. We'll get back to more of the conversation. We'll talk more, too, about this notion that perhaps the church is sort of settling into what is superficial because it is simply, well, just that, simple. A time out back with more as Lifeline continues. KFAX San Francisco. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back with author and Christian apologist Dr. Alex McFarland, his new book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. By the way, newly released by Regal Books. You'll find it at the usual suspects as well as Amazon.com. And you can also order it online through Dr. McFarland's website. It's easy, AlexMcFarland.com. Now, Alex, I want to choose my words wisely here because I know the minute I say this, somebody's going to tune in a nanosecond late, not catch the whole statement, and uh, the next thing I'll know, I'm going to be uh, accused here of teaching heresy. <laughs> but I, I'm wondering, we spoke just before the break about this sense that it seems as if we're, we're not willing to do the hard work. We want it instant, cheap, easy, no commitment. Um, it's as if we want our Christianity to be simple and ultimately superficial. I have to wonder, if we look at the five pillars, we can talk about virgin birth, deity, Christ, death, burial, resurrection, all indicative of of what I believe. Sure, sure. And yet, and here's where I get into trouble because somebody's going to misconstrue this, but it doesn't require a lot of me. And, and here's what I mean by that. When you talk about embracing the truths of the teachings of Jesus Christ that touch on so many aspects of life, and you hit a lot of the major ones inside these ten issues that divide Christians, a lot of this requires me to be engaged, to think, to bring my my thinking and my behavior in line with God's ideal for me and what Scripture teaches. It, it causes me to have some skin in the game. Whereas, and again, here I'm afraid to get I'm, get in trouble because somebody's going to misconstrue what I'm saying. Whereas, accepting, for example, the virgin birth doesn't, other than a little, you know, mustard grain worth of faith, doesn't really require a lot of me and doesn't cause me to change my life very much. Is that part of the problem here that we, we're okay on the five fundamental pillars because at the end of the day, it doesn't call a lot for me to do? Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head, and uh, for the record, I, I, I don't think you're being heretical. Um, you know, um, it's been pointed out quite a bit, uh, so this is not original with me, obviously, but um, there's orthodoxy and there's orthopraxy. Well, you know, orthodoxy is right belief, and orthopraxy, from the Greek word praxis, which means action, orthopraxy is right action. And so, you know, to embrace orthodoxy, um, you're right, that doesn't cost us a whole lot. We say, okay, Jesus is the Son of God, he's deity, I, I get that. His blood was shed on the cross to wash my sins away, that's the atonement, I get mm-hmm. that. And you're right, the, the, the pillars of, of biblical truth, you know, we, we put our faith, we believe those. But orthopraxy, uh, right action, that, that's going to require what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians about, I die daily. Now, 
um, the sin that tempts one person may not be the sin that tempts somebody else. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, goodness gracious, anger issues or, or you know, immorality or just slothfulness and being lazy. And, I mean, um, what sin it is that Christ wants you to turn from and overcome in his power, that's between everyone listening and the Holy Spirit. But, but you're right, getting some skin in the game, as you said, I mean, that takes discipline. It takes, it takes sacrifice. And, you know, um, in the um, 1700s and 1800s, in, in Europe, uh, some of the things that really transform Europe, the history books tell us the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, but one of the big things that transformed Europe in the, the you know, 18th and 19th centuries was the Wesley-led revival. And they talked much about spiritual discipline. And they even had a, kind of an early form of accountability groups that Wesley called holy clubs, where they would get, you know, eyeball to eyeball with each other, and they would ask each other, you know, did you pray today? Are you reading God's Word? Are you uh, letting Christ have victory over your life? And um, there were, to, to our 21st century ears, rather invasive personal questions, uh, but the Church was serious about corporate Christ-likeness, and, and it transformed Europe, and there are other examples I could give, but but you're right. We C.S. Lewis talked about a Christianity that promises something, but also demands something. And yeah. Jesus demands our all, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And, and you know, for, for Christianity to be thoroughly transformative, we need to yield ourselves to it. And as much as I say that, you know, kind of the easy part is the embracing of the five pillars here, the five fundamentals, and yet I, I'm quickly, too, reminded that if you really ponder on these things, if you are meditative upon Scripture and fully understand the totality of what those five pillars really mean to me or to, you know, each of us individually, it cannot help but be transformative. It is perhaps then that we kind of stop at that point. We, we accept it by faith, but we take it no further because the transformative part suggests also a tremendous amount of, of surrendering, doesn't it? And maybe it's that part here that we don't want to surrender to the hard work of Christianity, to the transformative part of Christianity, because let's face it, it requires a little bit of effort. It requires some sacrifice. It requires giving up of things. Well, you're exactly right. And, and you know, the, the fact is that um, we've got to recover an ethic of 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 discipleship that you know we we've got to let god define what um we are to look like i mean we're we're content with kind of where we are um many times in even in american christendom and hey man i'm preaching at alex here too i mean we're content with what we are but we're not content with what we have and that's 180 degrees out of faith mm. we should be content with the things we have but not really content with the person that we are. You know, Christianity is is a lifelong pursuit of, of Christ-likeness and letting God change us. And, um, you know, let, let's tie this to America of the 21st century, because, you know, studies show all this, you know, pretty disconcerting data that uh, we're not seeing a lot of people get saved. So many, many churches are plateaued or declining. Uh, the good Lord knows that those who espouse you know, biblical values have pretty much had their hat handed to them in recent elections. And, you know, Christianity Today a few years ago said, you know, gone is the ability to think Christianly in common, even within one denomination. And 
this might sound simplistic and it might sound old fashioned, but Craig, I'm I'm just going to say, as a guy that's been in, you know, all fifty states many times over to preach, we need an awakening. We need a revival. And by the way, the word revival is a biblical word. It means a return to the things that bring life. And uh, it's for the Great Commission. It's for our children's children, and it's for the salvation of our nation. You know, and it's interesting because when you say that, my mind quickly went to how interesting it has been of recent decades that frequently when the church speaks of revival, we do so in the context of um, seeing a mass wave of the Holy Spirit that would bring about a sense of conviction and therefore non-believers would suddenly turn to Christ, repent, and become believers, that it is somehow transformative of those on the outside of the walls of the church, and yet it would suggest to me that if you're going to revive something that has to suggest that there would have been a spark of life there to begin with, maybe the biggest part of the transformative work that needs to take place in the world in general is not just the world in general, but it really starts with the church in specific, reviving of the body of Christ, does it not? I mean, after all, what we're literally talking about here when we when we discuss many of these moral issues, and we're going to dive into them after a, a brief time out here, uh, Dr. McFarland, but we're really talking about the way we as the church have kind of surrendered and given up on these points, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. The the church looks too much like the world, and before we see much church growth, we, we've got to see some church help. Do we ask the wrong question? Because quite frankly, Christians get together, and we'll talk about politics of the day and the news of the day and things of this sort, and usually that conversation will center back around to, well, what's happened to the world? Are we asking ourselves the wrong question, ultimately? I think we have. Yeah, that, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's um, sinners sin. Uh, we can't fault a lost person for acting like a lost person. No, no, as, as I frequently say, don't be surprised when the unregenerate behaves so. <laughs> well said. Well said. Yeah, we. You know, we've got to again believe that people without Christ are, are on their way to hell. Um, we've got to have compassion and really believe what Jesus told us about the spiritual condition of people, that uh, without the new birth, uh, people are lost. And I, I think we've got to, again, take Christ's Great Commission seriously, that uh, we're to go into all the world, preach the gospel, we're to make disciples from all nations, and that includes our very own nation here, the United States. Very true. Dr. Alex McFarland with us tonight. We are talking about the 10 issues that divide Christians. We'll take a time out. We'll dive into some of these issues. Ask Dr. McFarland why these particular issues and ultimately why each of them are so important. A time out back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back now to the conversation, Dr. Alex McFarlane, my guest, to look at his book, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. Now, let's get into some of these topics. Uh, first, out of curiosity, and just in terms of arriving at these, I guess any of us could sit down and come up with a list. I don't know that we would all match with the same list, but in terms of these, why did you feel that these were the most divisive and, at the same token, perhaps the most important? Uh, well, Craig, when I travel and speak, I do a lot of open mic Q&A. And I keep a lot of notes. Um, you know, one of my first books was the ten most common objections to Christianity and how to how to effectively answer them. And you know, for a couple of years, I was just keeping track of the Q and A that I would do in churches and at colleges. And you know, these came up issues like you know abortion and homosexuality and war and the the environment. And you know, what did America's founders intend? the role of religion to be in public life. And, you know, one thing in talking to young people, 
uh, the concept of, of you know what is called American exceptionalism. You know, and I, I would say that I'm a very patriotic person. I I love this nation, and uh, I I really don't see even among Christian millennials, those that are under thirty, I don't always see a lot of you know love of America, and so I did feel like. Um, you know, American exceptionalism was something to write about to try to get um, kind of a new generation of Christians sort of up to speed on what has made this country unique. So um, among some of the hot-button issues that, you know, it's kind of funny, I'll be at these churches and, you know, imagine like on a, on a Sunday morning I, I would preach, but then on a Sunday night we would have an open Q&A, and, you know, there's, you know, 800 people there, and somebody comes to the mic and asks about, you know, homosexuality or gay marriage or, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender issues or what about online porn. And, you know, you can see the pastor sometimes would get uh, uncomfortable. But but I've got to say that, um, you know, I've never um, tried to answer these in a way that's abrasive or burns bridges. I, I've always tried to give audiences, you know, content that was biblically factual and, you know, statistically driven given good, relevant information that is, um, you know, speaking the truth, but speaking it in love. And I've found that so many audiences around the nation, um, even if they disagree, um, and even, let's say there's people there that have been brought with a friend, and maybe they're not a person who's a Christian yet, um, if you have these dynamics, trust, honesty, and respect, trust, honesty, and respect, um, you know, you can talk to people about even some of the most uh, volatile issues. And in the book, we try to encourage the church um, to, you know, not be afraid to to tackle even the, the thorniest of problems or issues, because, you know, God God's Word has spoken. God has something to say about the biggest challenges of life. And, and I guess I just, I came up with this first volume of ten potentially divisive issues. Are, are some of these issues ones also that perhaps um, we need to do some work on in terms of sort of reclaiming them for the church? And, and I raised that question. I, I, you had a you, you shared an experience in there which reminded me of one that I had many years ago speaking at a, a public fundraiser. And um, um, Ryan Dobson, Jim Dobson's son, happened sure. to be the keynote speaker, and I was the, the MC. And at the end of the event and a couple of days later, I found out that uh, um, some of the members of the board of directors of this organization had uh, made it very vocally known that they did not want either of us invited back to the event. Uh, because while we were at a pro-life event, um, both Ryan Dobson and I made note of the fact that we had just elected a pro-life president. Mm-hmm. And it was concluded that we had somehow... Just by making that comment of something that happened that very week, uh, that we were politicizing the entire event and it was a terrible thing that we had done so. And I, and, I, and I thought of the story that you shared um, where you had been accused of politicizing um, one of your talks because you addressed issues concerning abortion and welfare, gay marriage, uh, the role of government at all, and uh, some of the uh, some of the um, more influential people within this organization had said that, well, clearly you were taking a Republican view of these points, and you should not be too publicized, or, I'm sorry, to, to politicize uh, that church meeting. Yeah, um, you know, I, I remember that interview when you and I had that conversation, and, and that's right. Um, you know, oftentimes if you come out with, you know, a, a strong stance, a biblical stance on some of these issues, um, periodically, and let, let me just say it, somebody will say, oh, well, I suppose you think God is a Republican. 
And it's it's not that at all. I will say that um, you know, in recent decades, there have been a number of issues that many Republican candidates took a more biblical stance on, like the issue of life, that life is sacred in all contexts, and we, we do not murder unborn humans for convenience. And so, um, but, but let me say this, friends. Um, Jesus addressed political issues. Um, when Jesus would engage the Sanhedrin, you know, they at the time of Christ, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but... You know, um, the the Jewish nation, they had its own police force. The Sanhedrin uh, would adjudicate uh, legal and moral and political matters. And when Jesus would uh, dialogue with the Pharisees, I mean, it would be almost like um, a religious leader today um, engaging with an elected official. And so it's it's really been a misnomer in recent decades, this assumption that, that I think is really wrong that... Um, Christians ought not speak out on political issues because, uh, listen, we we might might not take an interest in political issues, but I assure you, political issues will take an interest in you. Well, moreover, I mean, it, don't we also need to be fair here in the lexicon that we use? And by that I mean, okay, let's take the topic of abortion. Yeah, the, abortion is a political issue. It is also a medical issue. It is also a moral issue. And so, therefore, to somehow suggest that the, the body politic touches on this topic, I mean, in a nation of self-governance where we elect individuals who will then go to the State House, the White House, the Congress to pass laws that will then govern, uh, the, you know, and give guidance to the nation. Yes, there's a political means by which a lot of these topics are played out. But in my mind, it's almost as if we're we're trying to scapegoat. We're trying to surrender um, important moral issues and somehow suggest that because there's a political dynamic or politics touches it, therefore it's a political issue, not a moral one, not one that ought to concern the church. Sure, you're you're absolutely right, and a lot of people assume wrongly that uh, we keep our religion and our politics separate, but they inherently overlap, and and they, there's huge need. I mean, I, I, let me say this: I'm really thankful our founding fathers didn't believe in keeping religion out of politics, because if if they had believed that, we wouldn't have an America. Well, moreover, if we don't allow our, our religion, or in this case our faith, to influence the way we think, the way we act, the way we govern ourselves, then I would have to ask the question, well, what value then is our faith? Exactly, exactly. Hey, you know, Charles Carroll was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and Charles Carroll said this, quote, without morals, a republic cannot subsist or continue for any length of time. Now listen to this. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. End of quote. Uh, a little bit simpler, I could put it this way. Noah Webster, Noah Webster said, quote, Let it be impressed upon your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. And, you know, if 2014 had been... 1776, we really would not have an America because, you know, back then uh, our founders believed in a divine law giver. They believed in moral absolutes. They recognized a just cause. Because, I mean, think about this. You know, there had been the Regulatory Act and the Stamp Act and the Port Act, and all of these things that they recognized were oppressive uh, by Britain on the colonists. And they, they said, you know, appealing to God for the rectitude of our intentions. In other words, you know, if, if we're wrong, uh, we'll answer to God for it, and if we don't act, we'll answer to God for that. They were willing to be patriots and be involved, 
because they recognized that the actions of Britain really violated an objective moral standard. And so, um, Craig, this conventional wisdom today uh, that, you know, quote, you know, Christians aren't to sully themselves with, with politics, um, that, is a, that is a myth. Um, Christians were involved in fighting slavery, ending racism and segregation. Christians right now are fighting human trafficking and, you know, the kidnapping of, of young people to put them into the sex trade and child labor. Um, in, in ancient Rome, Christians opposed gladiatorial combat and the death games and infanticide throughout history and temple prostitution and child sexual abuse and in Eastern countries uh, treating wives as property. And so thank God that Christians have, in previous generations, been in po- involved in politics because it cut a swath of, of beneficence and morality across the pages of history. And again, if we are to salvage our Constitution, and if we are again to have an America where we are free to uh, pursue liberty and serve our Creator, We've got to rediscover a biblical worldview, proclaim it, uh, even defend it. Uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, the idea that there's a God and, and a moral code, uh, for many that's a bitter pill to swallow. But Craig, I would say that is a less bitter pill than the pill we're currently swallowing, which is really societal chaos and no boundaries, no rules. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with Dr. Alex McFarland. He was one of the nation's leading Christian apologists, author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Ten Issues That Divide Christians. It is newly released, as we mentioned a moment ago, by Regal Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com and, of course, Alex's website, alexmcfarland.com. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with Dr. McFarland. When we do, as we recognize the fact that painfully true inconvenient or not, the church no longer wields the influence it once did on the society and the world around us. How do we recapture all of that? Time out, then back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. All right, Gary, did I lose you? No, I'm here. You're still there. I'm bra- you're a brave man, Gary. All right, here, here, here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or have been unable to answer. Um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not, not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget, in a state like California, for example, 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education, okay? So if we have a $110 billion budget this year, $55 billion is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does, and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education, and then our kids cross the uh, the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma, we know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. California, on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California, on average, is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yes. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? 
little less than little that. less than that, but but, but ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's ten thousand per students and about thirty, let's let me tell you what we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say twenty five students. So ten thousand dollars per student and twenty five students per classroom. That means twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by my math. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that $50,000 was going to the educator's salary? Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? 60000 64, average. 64,000? Yep. Average. Uh, all right. 64,000. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're we're going to say uh approximately after we've paid the teacher, who's earning an average of about $64,000, we'll do some round numbers here, uh, $185,000 of the 250000 per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going? So this is a true-false question, or this is you actually want to know where the money is? I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former uh, superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, he said, you were constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you ought to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money, I've got to wonder, where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers? Okay, well, I've got an answer for you, but it was a long question, so you have to give me a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree, uh, we obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, so we would agree that, to pour, we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, etc., and not be gobbled up by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey, a new film, what's happening, which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there was a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called Waiting for Superman, uh, and this one's called The Cartel. And it shows what's happening in New Jersey, which is absolutely a, corale- a, a you know, corollary with what's happening in California and in other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway. And that is, it showed that there are over 400 school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year. Not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state. And that's off the backs of teachers' dues, which comes out of taxpayer money as well, as you know. So the money goes down a black hole, and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. We don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are it's just like our United States government. We have, what was it? By the year 2025, there are going to be more people 
in the Department of Agriculture, and they're going to be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today. Let me interrupt you, Gary, and say what a breath of fresh air. You have done, you've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally, I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator to finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done, when you look at the layers of bureaucracy, as we have, you know, the local board of of education, and then we got the state board of education, and then we got the feds on top of that, and everybody having something to say, on average, we're looking at three people collecting a salary in the state of California attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom. Yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these these glorified paper pushers right. that add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education. Sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now. You can send me the hate email later. Not one, adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids. You know what? I tell you, I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock, and barrel. Number one, we don't need three layers of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions. The state level, the feds, goodbye you're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one classroom teacher, flip that around. If you flip it around, I'm okay with that. I wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the covers you just did now here on radio and, 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 and let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education. I couldn't have said it better, and apparently it's a good answer. So do I get $64,000? You know what? If if you work with us to get more people educated in this arena, Gary, absolutely, and then some. Hey, we're out of time. I want to have you back on, Gary. I'm sorry we're out of time here. We're going to get you scheduled on earlier next time on the program. Um, I like this organization. And finally, somebody that knows how to tell the truth. American Association of Educators, aaeteachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it. Make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.